whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over. Probably for all time. Why was he dressed like that? He's a transvestite. Uh, not exactly. A man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive. And when reality came too close, when danger or desire threatened that illusion, he'd dress up, even to a cheap wiki board. He'd walk about the house, sit in her chair, speak in her voice. He tried to be his mother. Welcome to We All Go A Little Mad Sometimes, a true crime and a sort of oddities podcast with your host, Punk Joe. I have a face for podcast and a passion for true crime. Today we're going to finish up the Ed Gein Odyssey, so let's get on with it. Like I said in the last episode, I used Howard Schechter's book, Deviant, a lot. I mean, I used other sources too, but mostly, let's face it, it's mostly comes from Deviant. But also, in the meantime, while I was recording episode one, Walter the Beautiful got me a book for my birthday. It's called, Did You Hear What Eddie Gein Done? And it's a really cool book. It's done by Harold Schechter and Eric Powell. And it's almost like a comic book, almost like one of the old Mad Magazines, if anybody remembers reading it. It's uh, like a picture book or a comic book. And the um, art illustration, I guess, was done by Eric Powell, who's absolutely fantastic. A lot of it was taken straight from Deviant. But anyway, it's it's a great book. If you get a chance to pick it up, it's worth it. They did a really good job on it. So we're going to continue on where we left off, where the Fellows were going through Eddie's house and they just opened up the other part of his house where they found rooms in pristine condition. So we're going to pick up from there. So it didn't take the men long to realize that it was the room of a woman. The bed was made. The clothes were folded and put away. Behind the boards lay a shrine, like a macabre museum to a goddess. The room hadn't been touched in 12 years since Augusta's death. Other than a little bit of dust and a little bit of faded wallpaper, everything was in pristine condition. At this point, Sheriff Schley headed back to the jail in Watoma where Eddie was being held. When he went inside, he asked Deputy Chase if he had come clean yet. The deputy told him, no, he's been quiet. So after spending six hours in Eddie's house of hell, seeing things that would make the most hardened of investigators sick to their stomach, Schley lost his cool. The new brawny sheriff grabbed little Eddie and began slamming him into the wall of his cell, handling him like a rag doll. The three deputies on duty quickly separated the two, but Eddie remained quiet. The following day, it was a Sunday morning, the people woke up to the horrifying news of their neighbor and friend Bernice Warden. The sheriff would not divulge any details except where she was found. Bernice's son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, told the reporters that Besides his mother's death, they found something even more horrifying. He said that would shake the state of Wisconsin. And Frank had slightly miscalculated that one because it would shake the world. That afternoon, in Ray Galt's funeral home slash furniture store, an autopsy was performed on Mrs. Warden. And I'm not going to repeat it because it's 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 incredibly detailed, and I'm not I'm not going to get into that. But uh, I mean, if you want to let, you want to hear it, just buy Schechter's book. He's got the whole thing in there where you can get it on Audible and have somebody read it to you. But for 30 hours, Eddie sat in his cell and wouldn't speak to anyone. By the following Monday morning in Plainfield, things had reached nearly chaos-like atmosphere. Whereas on Saturday, they had told the press that four human faces were found in Eddie's house. Now by Monday, the count was up to 10. 
and the crime lab is still at it. They also began a search of Eddie's 195-acre property. Reporters from all the major news outlets had come to Plainfield, including Life, Time, and Look magazines, as well as overseas news outlets. Police departments from outside of Plainfield also started looking for answers for unsolved disappearances from their areas, too, as well. There were several disappearances in the area that the, the police kind of liked Eddie for. Uh, we already talked about Mary Hogan. Some of the other ones were the Oakland Center area in Jefferson County, which is south of Plainfield. Georgia Jean Weckler had gone missing on May 1st, 1947. A neighbor, Mrs. Carol Florkey, had dropped the little girl off at the end of her driveway after school, and Georgia just vanished without a trace. They couldn't find no evidence, and she was never found. Another young girl had gone missing, Evelyn Hartley, had gone missing on October 24, 1953 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Knowing that Eddie had ties to La Crosse, uh, the police wanted to talk to him about it. Evelyn had been babysitting, as it was customary for Evelyn to speak to her parents throughout the night while she was sitting. At 8.30, her dad was unable to reach her, and when they came to check on her, they found that an intruder had come in through the cellar window and abducted the young lady and they had found evidence of her forced abduction. Over 2,000 volunteers looked for, uh, for Evelyn, and she was never found. Both of these crimes were over 100 miles from the Gein farm. Although Eddie had ties to La Crosse, he had never been back. I also read that he'd been back to, to visit relatives, but I've read both ways that he was never back, and he had been back to visit relatives. And the other one that they liked him for was uh, November 1st, 1952, a uh, local man, uh, Victor Bunk Travis, and a friend of his, Ray Burgess, were together having drinks at Max Bar in Plainfield. And around 7 p.m., the two had left, drove off into the woods, and completely vanished. And there's several things that stands out to me. One being that, why would you leave the bar at 7 p.m. and drive off into the woods to go hunting? It doesn't make sense to me, unless they had a deer camp somewhere nearby. Number two, November 1st, seems to me to be a little early for deer season. And the other thing they said that the, this guy, Ray Burgess, had uh, kept flashing wads of $100 bills, which you're just asking for trouble doing that in a bar, I guess. So either they, they got robbed or they got had an accident. And maybe someday they'll find their vehicle in the bottom of a pond somewhere. You know, shouldn't drink and drive. <laughs> shouldn't flash $100, $100 bills around in a bar, especially 1952. That was a lot of money. So after 30 days... Eddie finally broke his silence. Of course, with all the evidence, he had little choice. District Attorney Earl Colleen sat down with Eddie to question him about Mrs. Warden. And what happened was, Eddie went to the Warden hardware store, went inside, bought some antifreeze, and Mrs. Warden gave him, gave him the antifreeze and wrote out a receipt for the antifreeze, and Eddie took it back to his car. Then Eddie came back into the store and asked Mrs. Warden. He said he was quite fond of that 22 that was up on the shelf and wanted to take a look at it. And he said that uh, he was thinking of trading his 22 in for one of the new ones that can handle all three 22 shells, I guess, a short, long shell, and long rifle shells. And his could only handle one kind. And she said, sure, here. And she took it off the shelf and handed it to him and said, well, that's my favorite kind of rifle. After she gave Eddie the gun, she turned around and was looking out the window, commenting on what was going on in town while he was looking at it. And what he did was he pulled a shell out of his overalls pocket, quietly put it in and cocked it and shot her in the back of the head. She didn't know it was coming. And then he dragged her out of the store and put her in the warden hardware delivery van then returned back into the store grabbed the cash register and put it in the van also he got in the van drove it east out of out of town out of plainfield to a little wooded area where teenagers would go like a little makeout spot and hid the van in the trees and walked back into town got his car took his car down to where the van was and took mrs warden out put her in his car and the cash register and went home. But what he told the district attorney, Colleen, was kind of, he told part of the story and it was mixed in with a lot of, well, I can't really remember and it's really hazy. I, 
I don't really remember shooting her, but I do remember dragging her out of the store and putting her in the van. And, you know, a lot of this that I, I just, I can't, re- you know, couldn't remember all of it. And he got a, about a 50% confession, I guess. Clean asked Eddie if he had it, uh, killed anybody else. And Eddie answered with, not to my knowledge. Well, Clean looked at Eddie and said, well, Eddie, then where did all the body parts in your house come from? And in a very matter-of-fact tone, Eddie said, well, from graveyards. While Clean listened in total astonishment, Eddie told him for a five-year period, beginning in 1947, he had made some 40 nighttime visits to area cemeteries most of the time leaving without anything. But on nine occasions, Eddie had dug up the graves and took out what parts he wanted and left the graves what he called an apple pie order. He kept a close watch on the obituaries and targeted middle-aged or older women that in some way or another reminded him of his mummy. The interrogators had a real difficult time believing that little Eddie had done this. They'd gone into cemeteries and dug them up and took body parts out and in the ensuing press conferences they made their opinions well known that they didn't believe him so during the next interrogation period this was done by uh, joe willimoski the crime lab polygraph specialist uh, gein displayed no real signs of remorse or any awareness of the enormity of what he had done joe willimoski was having he was having trouble ed it seemed like though ed would kind of he had trouble keeping his facts straight and it seemed like Eddie would kind of go along with whatever Joe said in a way, kind of like a little school kid that wants to help his teacher out in the classroom and kind of just go along and do whatever she wants him or her to do. So he had to be really careful during his questioning. So the interview went something kind of like this. So Ed, how long have these night trips to the graveyard been going on? I suppose since around 47 but I never took any of them until about 1950 or so, I guess. How many trips do you think you made? Oh, at least 40. And how many times did you actually open the grave and remove the bodies? Let me see. That's uh, seven in Plainfield, one in Hancock, one in Spiritland, nine. About nine total. Eddie, describe how you'd open these graves. I'd just dig up the top half of the coffin and open it up and slip them out. Then put everything right back in apple pie order. And you would only remove sections of the flesh? Yeah, that's right. What sections would you remove? The head. The head and the vagina? Well, not always that. And sometimes you'd return these sections of the body back to the grave? Yeah, that's right. I'd get to feeling guilty about it. Well, Eddie, how many did you return? Let's see. Well, actually, some were left right there and never taken away. Eddie, do you recall taking any of those female parts, the vagina specifically, and holding them over your penis to cover it? I believe that's true. Would you ever put on a pair of women's panties over your body and then put some of these vaginas over your penis? That could be. Have you ever wanted to remove your penis to become a woman? Yes, that did come into my mind when I was younger. And these masks that you made, how long would you wear them? Oh, not too long. Maybe an hour. I had other things to do. Eddie didn't seem to mind talking about the graves and his perverted wardrobe, but was less willing to talk about the murders. Eddie admitted to slipping on the leggings, covering his penis with a preserved vulva, and mammary vests and human skin masks and wear them around the house like his mama or even going outside on a moonlit warm summer night. Could you imagine? It's summer 1956. You take your family to a Milwaukee Braves game. You're coming home late at night. You just had the family out at the ballpark with ice cream and hot dogs and you're driving home late. You're getting back into Washara County about 1 o'clock in the morning, and you're driving down the road, and you see this wired-haired, wrinkled-up old woman walking around in her yard of her old creepy old house, butt naked. Now, that's the makings for a horror movie right there. 
Eddie casually explained that he also sawed off skull caps and used them as bowls. He got the idea from the Vikings and also sprinkled salt on the vulvas as a preservative. As one had uh, begun to had begun to deteriorate, so he painted it silver. And this is uh, I'm going to take this directly from Schechter's book because this made this was great. It made me laugh. So during the interrogation, Eddie complained of hunger, and he was presented with a piece of apple pie with a chunk of Wisconsin cheddar on top. And Eddie munched on his snack while he continued to answer questions. But the apple pie didn't the pie didn't quite meet up to Eddie's finicky standards. He interrupted his tale of body snatching, corpse flaying, and flesh wearing. The little man who ate his soup from skull caps and kept a box of salted vaginas began to fuss about the dryness of the cheese. So after Eddie's interrogation, he told Sheriff Schley that he had something back at the farm he wanted to show the sheriff. But the sheriff knew that if he took Eddie out to the farm, he'd be followed by a whole horde of reporters. So he asked the reporters to back off because the last time he took Eddie out to the farm, Eddie got gun shy with all the reporters around and, and wouldn't wouldn't speak or wouldn't do anything. So he made him a deal that he would tell the reporters, when I take Eddie back to the hospital, I'll let you know, give you a heads up on that. So you could meet us at the hospital, but to stay off our backs while we, we go to the farm. The sheriff took Eddie out to the farm and met the sheriff from Portage County there as well. And Eddie, what Eddie had to show him was where he buried the remains of Mary Hogan. He told the sheriff he hung her up in his woodshed and took her apart like he was doing with, with Bernie's warden and kept the parts he wanted and the rest he burned in his potbelly stove and buried on the farm. So in the following days, they had a crew out there digging and collecting more remains and they also found nearly a complete skeleton in a garbage trench um, that he had there on the farm. After the meeting, Eddie took Sheriff Schley and the sheriff from Portage County uh, on the route that he used when he uh, murdered Mary Hogan. So later on that day, Eddie was shuffled off to uh, Waupon, Wisconsin, to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane uh, for his evaluation. But the evidence found in Eddie's house, the source of the human remains specifically, remained unresolved. I mean, did he really rob graves? Or was he like crazy serial killer? Most of the folks didn't believe him. The idea of one man digging up a grave, exposing a coffin, opening it, and toting off whatever body parts he wanted, and then covering the grave up to look like no one had, had been there seemed too fantastic to the, to the residents of Plainfield. So after Eddie's interrogation, they also gave him a polygraph. Charles Wilson, the superintendent of the Wisconsin State uh, Crime Lab, had a press conference to report on Eddie's polygraph test. And Eddie was asked a lot of questions in the, the polygraph test uh, about the local people that were missing, the murders, and, and also uh, Charles Wilson made this press conference to clear up some things. The superintendent stated, in consultation of the interested district attorneys, the test have eliminated Edward, 51 years, as the person responsible for or involved in the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley in La Crosse on October 24, 1953, Georgia Weckler in Jefferson County on May 1, 1947, and Victor Travis in Adams County, November 1, 1952. And Mr. Gein is responsible for the death of Mary Hogan in Portage County on December 8, 1954, and Bernice Warden in Washora County on November 16, 1957. This release, jointly concurred in by the local officials, made to eliminate Mr. Gein from further unnecessary conjecture and suspicion. I guess hoping that that would clear up some of the scuttlebutt going on through town and through the county, probably through the country. But Eddie's attorney, William uh, Belter, also, he informed Eddie that uh, he was going to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and uh, Eddie agreed. It sounded good to him. He's always easy to go along with stuff. But Belter later said, I don't think he has a real appreciation for what he's done. I mean, Belter seemed to notice the enormity of Eddie's crimes. The law noticed. The people of Plainfield noticed. The people of the USA noticed. Even the world noticed. 
the only one that seemed oblivious to it all was Eddie. So by now, the details of Eddie's activities had begun to trickle out to the public. Of course, they knew what was happening, but an anonymous source present at the uh, Gein interrogation had spoke to a big-time newspaper. They read about the masks, the homemade woman suit, made from 100% all-American woman. Whether they were made in the USA or not, I can't say, but the suit was. The mask wearing and how he preserved the mask with oil when they began to dry out. The anonymous source said the most bizarre reason behind it was that Gein suffered from an Oedipus complex, which accounted for his criminal behavior. What is an Oedipus complex, you ask? Let's let Mr. Peterson tell us. Hey, boys and girls. This is Rupert Peterson with the word of the day. Today's word is Oedipus complex. Can you say that? I like the way you say that. The Oedipus complex is a psychoanalytic theory proposing that children have possessive sexual desires for their opposite sex parent while viewing their same sex parent as a rival, and that the complex is resolved when children overcome their incestuous competitive emotions to begin to view their same-sex parent as a role model. The Oedipus complex was named for the Greek myth of Oedipus, a Thabian king who unwittingly killed his father and married his mother. This theory was established by Sigmund Freud in 1899. Oedipus Complex Thank you, Mr. Peterson. So this accounted for his criminal behavior, which included the murder of two women, which resembled his mother. Eddie revealed an unnatural attachment to his mother, wishing he himself was a woman at times. He studied anatomy in medical books. One psychiatrist described Gein as one of the most unique cases of psychosis and one of the most dramatic human beings to ever confront society. And that's hard to argue with. Some others diagnosed Eddie as schizophrenic, created by his mother, explaining that Gein possesses a high level of ambivalence. The greatest of this is that it is possible to have conflicting feelings for the same individual. It is possible to love and hate a person at the same time. Those of us that have been married for a long time know that your spouse can be all lovey-dovey one minute, and then seconds later, want to smack you in the head with a cast iron skillet. But that's not the same as what Eddie was going through. Both of those feelings at the same time, which he probably saw all women in this way, was magnified when he saw someone that reminded him of his mother. Again's mother preached to him about uh, how modern women and, and how they were, had the devil in them, except for herself, of course. She was perfect in every way. A psychiatrist went on to say that we know when a woman constantly puts down other women, it has an effect on their children, uh, especially one like Eddie, who something was off to begin with. But uh, he said Gein abnormally conflicted feelings towards his mother. It was a cluster of symptoms unparalleled in the annals of psychosexual pathology, acute forms of transvestism, fetishism, and the disordered love of now living objects, and worst of all, necrophilia, the love of the dead. The Friday after Eddie's arrest, he appeared in court before Judge Bundy. Eddie said very little, but requested no photos during the hearing. Eddie's lawyer, William Belter, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which at the time, uh, District Attorney Earl Clean requested Eddie be sent to Central State Hospital for a sanity evaluation. Belter agreed with Clean, stating that he was going to have Eddie meet with a Milwaukee doctor for an independent evaluation. Both the DA and Eddie's lawyer explained to the judge how Mrs. Warden's body was found and his graveyard activity. The judge agreed with both the state and the defendant's counsel and agreed a determination regarding Eddie, Eddie's sanity uh, must be evaluated. Then Judge Bundy signed an order committing Eddie to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane for a 30-day evaluation period and remanded him into the custody of uh, Sheriff Schley. Later that day, D.A. Colleen, Judge Bundy, and other local officials had a meeting to discuss several matters involved in the Gein case. 
The topics included the around-the-clock watch on Eddie's house, as well as the crimes Eddie committed outside of Washara County, the murder of Mary Hogan, the grave desecrations, and other possible crimes. The DA said in regarding these crimes outside of Washara County that these crimes are regrettable, but in the end not the responsibility of Washara County. His point was that Washara County is one of the poorer counties in the state, and this case was becoming very expensive. But the big topic of the meeting was the exhumation of some of the graves to verify Gein's story. And quite a few people fussed about that, claiming there is no way one man, let alone a little man like Eddie, could possibly accomplish this, uh, to dig up the grave and take what he wanted and fill it back in and make it look untouched in just a few hours. And nobody's seen a thing over a five-year period. It just didn't seem possible. The Plainfield Cemetery Sexton, Pat Dana, someone qualified to speak on the matter, absolutely disagreed with the notion. He hadn't seen any evidence of any grave tampering at all. Now, Ray Gould, Plainfield's only mortician, thought it might be possible because most of the caskets were put in the wooden boxes and not concrete vaults, and the caskets were not usually locked. He did, however, say he thought it was unlikely it could be done by one little guy, which would mean that Eddie murdered these women that was found in his house. They thought that would be unlikely given the fact that his M.O. lacked any degree of cleverness. He just went into a store and shot the, both of them, shot them in the head and dragged their bodies out into a waiting truck, leaving shell cases and other evidence behind. It seemed unlikely he could have committed eight other murders and not have gotten caught. But proving it meant digging the graves up for verification, and the district attorney, Colleen, was not a big fan of that. After a period of time and incredible pressure from the people of Plainfield, Clean had a press conference and uh, did a, an about-face, and he told the press that Eddie had given him eight or nine names of people that Eddie had dug up. And Clean told the press that uh, they would dig up two graves. If the bodies were unmolested, he would halt the operation. If they found the graves had been tampered with, there's a possibility he would unearth them all. The first one they intended to dig up was 52-year-old Eleanor Adams, who had been deceased for six years. He also noted the proximity of Mrs. Adams' grave to Eddie's mother's grave. So on a cold Monday morning, 12 men representing Washara County, the town of Plainfield, as well as the widower of Eleanor Adams, and two members of this group were experienced grave diggers. As they approached Mrs. Adams' grave, they were kind of struck not only by the proximity of Mrs. Adams' grave to Eddie's mother's grave site, but the words on top of Mrs. Adams' headstone read, Mother. And the men were kind of dreading this because they still didn't believe it was possible. And uh, as the two sextons began their dig, uh, it was tough going at first due to the frozen surface, but within an hour, the men hid a wooden, the wooden box that Mrs. Adams' coffin was encased in. It was kind of starting to dawn on them that, uh, hey, this could be possible. It only took us an hour and the ground was frozen. Considering that uh, she was buried in August and Eddie claimed to have plundered uh, her grave the night that she was buried. So uh, the men were now kind of like holding their breath as they uncovered the last few inches of soil on top of the box. But they could immediately see that something was off once they got the dirt off of it. It had been tampered with. The wooden box had been split in two. After cleaning the top off and exposing the coffin, the men all kind of took a deep breath and held it as the sexton opened the casket. And the only thing inside was a 12-inch crowbar. Mrs. Adams was gone. They took the evidence, refilled the grave, and moved to another location. The second effort was that of Miss Mabel Everson, who died in 1951, a few months before Eleanor Adams. The two sextons began digging, and again, it took about an hour. This time... The men got their answer before hitting the wooden box. They found a pile of human bones, a section of skull, a jaw, part of a leg, and other smaller fragments, as well as an upper and lower dental plate and a gold wedding band. The men were sure that this was all they were going to find of Mabel. But they continued digging and found the box, and the box top had been chiseled in two, and it also con contained an empty casket. And they wondered about the bones being outside of the box, but Eddie had told them, about feelings of guilt, all in, and he was putting stuff back, but he couldn't. He couldn't have felt too guilty because he didn't put it all back. 
So any of they filled that one back in and, and we're headed out and, and of the cemetery and reporters are waiting outside and they had lots of questions. The men somewhat somber after that, which I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy because they didn't know what to expect. And it could have been really bad. Well, it was really bad either way, no matter how you look at it. It was bad if the bodies were in there and it would have been bad if they weren't. And they were somewhat taken aback at what they witnessed. And they said, uh, we have evidence that verifies Gein's story. And um, we won't dig up any more graves if we can help it. So now Eddie had arrived at Wapan at the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. It's now called the Dodge Correctional Institute. The facility houses about 300 inmates. Although they enjoyed the freedom to move about the facility, they were closely guarded. Dr. Edward F. Schubert told the press that Eddie's going to go through a month-long evaluation, including a thorough physical exam and a full battery of tests, including the Minnesota Multi-Phase Personality Inventory, the Wexler-Bellevue Intelligence Test, the uh, Inkblot Test, just to name a few, as well as very extensive interviews by the staff. The purpose of all this was to determine Gaines' sanity, whether he understands the nature of his acts and can assist in his defense and knows the difference between right and wrong. If they come to the conclusion that Eddie was, in fact, sane, he would be tried for Bernice Warden's murder. If he was insane, then Eddie was pretty much home now. William Belter, Eddie's attorney, was back in Watoma making a rather startling disclosure to the press. During his week in jail, he said, Eddie got thinking about things and made his own diagnosis. So all by himself, Eddie solved the mystery of his illness. He blamed the dog. Eddie described to his attorney that back in 1945 that him and his mama gone off to a, a neighbor's to buy some hay. I think I told this earlier. When they pulled up to the neighbor's farm, the man was out in his yard beating a puppy with a stick. And a woman came out of the house pleading with him to stop. The man, he was a jerk, but he kept on beating the puppy. This uh, apparently struck Augusta in a bad way. And Belter went on to explain that it wasn't the beating of the puppy and it wasn't the jackass neighbor doing it. Eddie blamed the woman. They weren't married and she had no business being there, so Augusta had a stroke, not because of the horrible beating of the puppy or because of the mean neighbor. It was the woman. Eddie liked to blame women for his misfortunes. Although, this is crazy, a woman was at the root of Eddie's troubles. Now, by this time, Eddie's house had become quite the tourist destination. Hundreds of people came through Plainfield to take a look at Eddie's house. The property was patrolled by sheriff's deputies. Even Eddie's attorney couldn't access the property. Some folks started to believe he was going to acquire the house and make it into some kind of macabre tourist destination. Uh, they weren't overly excited about this idea either. But back in Central State, Eddie was going through a very thorough examination. All in all, they said the little man was in fairly good shape considering his horrible upbringing and his extremely bereft and destitute life that he was in pretty good shape. The physician also made a special note that Eddie would often whine and complain of headaches and nausea and needed to be returned to his room, often complained about the smells. And when asked to explain, Eddie said, it smells like flesh. Then the psychological test began. Eddie's IQ is tested at 99 but the psychiatrist stated that he has a smart, but is functioning at an inefficient level. The assessment was not of a well person, probably psychotic in nature. He had inefficient ego, immaturity, and conflict of identification, and possible illogical thought processes. More testing brought other results, such as a strong feminine identification, bizarre religious beliefs. He believed he could raise the dead by willpower, tendency to project the blame of evil, on someone else, a strikingly immature level of sexuality characterized by feelings of guilt. He appears to be a very suggestible person who is emotionally dull, and this report was very lengthy. Eddie definitely went on to blame others for his hardships. He claimed not to remember anything about the murder of Mary Hogan. He did remember taking a 22 caliber bullet out of his overall pocket and loading it into his into the rifle at the warden's hardware store, but claims, and always will claim for the rest of his life, 
the shooting of Mrs. Warden was an accident. When asked about his parents, his views of his father were completely negative. He claimed that he was rough on him and his brother Henry. His views of his mother were com the complete opposite. He said she was good in every way. He stated that after the death of his mother, things to him seemed unreal, and he could hear his mother's voice talking to him at times. Eddie said he would see things like, in the woods all the tops of the trees were gone, and vultures were there in their place. He also saw faces and leaves. He felt that Mrs. Warden died because she deserved it. It was ordained by God. Eddie denied the murder of Mrs. Hogan, saying that he admitted it because they wanted him to. He denied the visceration of Mrs. Warden, saying he, he couldn't have done that. Putting together a chronological record was impossible. He stated he had uh, violated nine graves for the sole purpose of remembering his mother. He denied any sexual activity with the cadavers. The reason is because they smelled too bad. He thought he could raise the dead by act of willpower and was disappointed when it didn't happen. Eddie was interviewed by other doctors with the same results. Eddie claimed to have never had sex except for self-gratification. Eddie's behavior at the hospital was excellent. He was easy to, for the staff to deal with, abided by all the rules. When the diagnosis came down, the hospital staff diagnosed Eddie as a schizophrenic reaction of the chronic, undifferentiated type. Because his judgment is based on fantasy, he is not considered to know the difference between right and wrong. Because he believed all his trouble was caused by outside forces, it was delusional at best. And because of his extreme suggestibility, he is not capable of participating in his defense. This man, in the opinion of the staff, is legally insane and not competent to stand trial. Eddie's issues go back to his mother, and it's not uncommon for a person to have a love-hate relationship with a parent. As adults, we make the best of a bad situation and kind of overlook the bad stuff and say, well, they did the best they could with what they had to work with. But with Eddie, a fragile mental state to begin with, he, he viewed the love towards his mother as as good a woman as it was possible to be, but subconsciously hating her for a life of cruel and unusual punishment. And he took it out on Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. You know, they were also sh strong business women like his mother was back in lacrosse. And in Mary's case, he could jump into her skin and become his mother. You know, was he imitating his mother as he knew her, or was he pretending to be the mother he wanted her to be when he wore his lady suit? Or did he just want to pretend to be a woman? I mean, it was Eddie was so easily swayed and manipulated, we may never actually know the real reason behind it. But Eddie was done with his test and was to be returned back to the Washara County Jail on December 23rd. Sheriff Hart Schley was less than excited to hear this news because him, himself, his wife, his three daughters lived at the jail. And he asked the doctor if Eddie could stay in Walpon until the 26th so that he can enjoy Christmas with his family. The doctor had no objection. Uh, Eddie was a good patient, and but it was uh, a call that the judge would have to make. The judge received Eddie's hospital report and made a statement without revealing the contents of the report. He stated that Edward Gein was found to be insane and would stay at Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. The townspeople of Plainfield were upset to hear this and said that uh, Eddie was a lot of things, but insane wasn't one of them. They knew him, they worked with him, they went to school with him, hunted with him. He was an oddball, but he wasn't as simple-minded as he was reported to be. So January 6, 1958, Wisconsin Rapids, Eddie's sanity trial took place to a packed courtroom. It was mostly full of neighbors and locals. Eddie came into the courtroom and was noticeably a little different. They were used to seeing him as a gaunt little man dressed in flannel and wool with a deer hat laid sideways on his head, face full of whiskers and his rubber boots on. But here came Eddie sporting a haircut and a shave, wearing a suit. He had put on a little bit of weight, looking like he was doing pretty good at the hospital. 
But at the beginning of the hearing, there was two factors in determining Eddie's sanity. One, that the accused is incapable of conferring with counsel and assisting in his defense. And number two, that the accused does not know right from wrong. And these things were laid out by the attorney general. And he said that the, have, just having a doctor say he's insane on its own is not enough to determine legally insane. Throughout the morning, the doctors were being questioned by the attorney general, the judge, and Eddie's attorney. These three guys were, while they were picking the doctor's brain about Eddie, he just sat there completely expressionless, chewing gum. In the afternoon, the first doctor called, had interviewed Eddie for six hours, and said that, you know, he may know how to set a dinner table, or, you know, which side of the plate the knife and fork goes on. He might know to stand up when the judge walks in, and he might know it's wrong to kill somebody or dig up graves. But, but to understand this in the way that a normal person does is inaccurate. Acting normal around town with the neighbors while carrying out grossly insane things for 10 years is not cunning or sly, but shows his extreme madness. His emotional responses were grossly inappropriate and his behavior was beyond comprehension. And there are many defects in his thinking when it comes to judgment. One of the three doctors participating gave his diagnosis of a, a borderline insanity kind of thing, saying that he was legally sane, but medically insane, but said it was a very close call. But the other doctors all said that he was legally insane. The judge then said he, he really had no choice but to find Eddie insane based on expert testimony. He stated it was a very tough judgment. He sentenced Eddie to return to Central State for an indeterminate amount of time, and perhaps he would never be at liberty again. Eddie sat there, still expressionless, chewing his gum. As soon as the judge rapped, Eddie was escorted out to a waiting car and whisked back to Central State, and Sheriff Sly was happy to oblige. Upon Eddie's arrival at the hospital, reporters snapped pictures of Eddie, and it would be the last time anyone would see him for quite some time. They asked his doctor what Eddie's life would be like, and the doctor said his life would be pretty bland. He would have a small room with a cot, a dresser, a bedside table. He would be assigned a, a menial job, mopping, cleaning, laundry, something like that. Paid a maximum of 50 cents a week, which he could, uh, you know, buy gum and candy at the hospital store. He would have free time to watch TV or listen to the radio, but no contact with the outside world, except relatives. But Eddie had none. So with that, the story's over, right? Uh, no. People of Plainfield were very, very upset with the verdict. They thought for someone who lived in a very deprived, horrifyingly filthy conditions with uh, all alone in this big farmhouse with no plumbing and no electricity, eating pork and beans for dinner out of a skull cap every night, is now in a warm facility with a bed, three meals a day, a TV, on-demand health care, and an easy job. It was like a country club life. The townspeople wanted some action from the attorney general, but it was futile. Part of Eddie's psychosis was the fact that he could interact with people and act semi-normal, but by his actions, he was a long way from it. Should Eddie get well, he would stand trial for murder. So as the winter wore on, all of this compounded with the cold, the gray, the snow, and all that crap that that part of the country is lucky enough to endure. It didn't help the residents of Plainfield's disposition much toward the Gein matter. The next phase of things to come brought in more tension, more tourists, and more media. The auction of the Gein property and his belongings scheduled for March 30th, 1958. In the 1st of March, a notice went up stating that the sale of Gein's farm and its contents, of course all the creepy stuff was removed and taken to the crime lab, the contents listed were uh, nothing really of interest, just some basic farm stuff. But it included his 1949 Ford sedan and his 1940 uh, pickup truck. The property was listed in two parcels. The first, the nine-room house and buildings with 40 acres. And the second, 
the balance of 155 acres. The notice stated that uh, bidders can review items on Sunday, March 23rd. The notice ended with authorized by Harvey Polson, guardian of Edward Gein, insane. And right under that on the notice was a little blurb of words at the bottom of the notice that said, and this just set the town on edge, an inspection fee of 50 cents per person shall be charged to all persons going through the dwelling. That little bit of verbiage lit a fire under the townspeople, especially the warden family. They thought it was an extraordinarily bad taste to charge admission to the house. Essentially, their worst fears had come true. Gein's house was being turned into a macabre museum and had petitioned the courts. Paulson claimed the reason behind the fee was to limit curiosity seekers in hopes that serious buyers would be willing to pay. The judge granted the town its wish and forbid the fee. However, as with everything else Gein related, it didn't end there. The town was also upset about the date. March 30th was Palm Sunday. A holy day, not a holiday. In the words of a local pastor, he felt, as did most of the townspeople, that it was a slap in the face of God. A judge, however, said it was already too well advertised to change the date and the sale would continue on as planned and that there really wasn't a whole lot anyone could do about it. On paper, anyway. Thursday, March 20th, at 2.30 in the morning, when Bert Carlson, the Plainfield police chief, spotted the blaze. He immediately called the, uh, the fire marshal, and by the time the fire department had got to the fire, there was little they could do. Eddie's house was engulfed in flames. They concentrated on saving the buildings is about all they could do. The growing crowd watched as Eddie's house was reduced to charcoal. And no one seemed to be upset about it either, including the fire marshal, Frank Warden. At daybreak, Sheriff Art Schley arrived and notified the state fire marshal, who in turn sent a deputy fire marshal to the Gein farm. The deputy firmly believed that the fire was arson. Gein's trustee, Harvey Polson, said there was no electric in the house and no electrical storm in the area. There was little else anyone could conclude that it was arson. No investigation or probe could determine any proof of any arson or arsonist, but the town was quite happy about this. Now, Eddie learned about the fire that morning. A psychiatric officer in charge of the unit at Central State had heard it on the news. And Eddie was still asleep when he got to work that morning. So he waited till after Eddie had his breakfast to tell him. And when he told him he tried to be as gentle as possible, he said, Eddie, your house is burned down. And Eddie's response was he kind of just put his hands up and said, it's just as well leaving people wondering if there was more secrets in the walls and the floors of Eddie's house. I guess we'll never know. But the auction went on as planned, with some 20,000 people driving through Plainfield. The remaining farm gear was sold off, as was Eddie's 1940 Chevy pickup truck. The whole property uh, sold to a real estate developer who eventually tore down the remainder of the buildings and planted some 60,000 trees on the property. The biggest sale item of the day was Eddie's car. His 1949 Ford sedan had sold for a whopping $760 to a sideshow exhibitor. He shined the car all up and put a wax dummy of Eddie in the front seat and a victim in the back seat and charged 25 cents admission to see Eddie Gein's gold car. And he took it around to uh, county fairs and the like, but but it didn't receive favorable reviews at all in Wisconsin. In July, the money raised from the auction was to be dispersed. The disbursement made the news. $5,375 was raised by the auction, 300 of which was set aside for Eddie's funeral, and that ruffled some feathers in Plainfield. $800 was given to the state for Eddie's care. The rest went to those who filed claims against the Gein estate. Most notably, the Warden family and the family of Eleanor Adams, the first grave unearthed by the local officials. Over the years, Eddie made the news from time to time, especially with the release of the movie Psycho in 1960. Around that same time, 
workman planting trees on Eddie's old property, found bones buried near where one of Eddie's barns was located. It was a fair amount of a human skeleton, and it was added to the rest of Eddie's collection at the crime lab. In December 1962, crime lab director Charles Wilson had petitioned the courts to allocate some funds uh, to bury the remnants of the human pieces found in Gein's house and property. He said they could be incinerated, but was asked by the clergy to return the remains to hollowed ground, and permission was granted. Eddie was faring pretty well at Central State. He, he got along well with the staff and other patients. Although he kept to himself mostly, he had a job and saved enough money to buy himself a ham radio. Eddie was reviewed by the staff every six months. Even though he would never go free, Eddie was sentenced to Central State until he was capable of standing trial. In January 1968, Judge Gomar received a letter from the Central State Prison stating that uh, Gein was capable of standing trial and aiding in his defense, but it also stated that he was still quite insane. The judge, knowing it was going to be a long trial with a predetermined outcome, was rather apprehensive, but you know, Gein never received his trial that he was entitled to. Again, raising the eyebrows of the town of Plainfield and the media was set abuzz again. In January 1968, the courtroom in Watoma was jam-packed with residents and reporters and TV crews. Gein, surrounded by deputies, was escorted into the courthouse amidst the buzz from the crowd. Gein's appearance was noticeably different. He had on a nice blue suit, a pressed shirt, and a tie with shiny shoes. He looked like a distinguished little elf. He definitely felt out of place. And he absolutely looked nothing like the little ghoul everyone remembered. The court proceeding took until November to be finalized, in which case Eddie was both found guilty of Bernice Warden's murder and innocent by reason of insanity at the same time. He was committed to Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. After a brief exchange with reporters where Eddie, of course, blamed others for his maladies, the town, neighbors, uh, people in general, everyone but his mother and father, he said he held no grudge against society. and he was happy to return to Central State. He said, they treat you pretty good there. And the judge reiterated that barring a miracle cure for schizophrenia, he would remain there forever. And in February 1974, Eddie petitioned the Washara uh, clerk of courts that uh, he said he was fully recovered, that he had fully recovered his faculties and should be released from the hospital. A hearing was held with Judge Gomar presiding, and three psychiatrists participated in the hearing, all stating that Eddie was either the same or worse than before. One had stated that Eddie could be moved to a different hospital to grant Eddie a little more freedom, but the other doctors disagreed. The judge said that he'd wished there was some way to give Eddie a little bit of freedom, but he wasn't able to do so, but did say that had Eddie gone to jail for murder, he would already be eligible for parole. In 1978, the hospital was converted into a correctional facility, and Eddie was transferred to the Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison. At 72 years of age, his health was declining, and a little bit of senility started creeping in, but Eddie was a bit of a, a celebrity in Madison. At 78, Eddie was senile, suffering from cancer, and on uh, July 26, 1984, he died from cancer. And in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness, like at 3 a.m. They buried Eddie next to his mother in an unmarked grave. I think at one point they put a tombstone up, but it, it kept getting vandalized and stolen, so I think now it's unmarked altogether. I do think that Eddie played up some of this crazy stuff a little bit um, to help out his chances of not having to go to prison. I mean, let's face it, man. If he went to prison, they'd eat him alive in there. But I do believe, though, Eddie, that Eddie did kill his brother, and he did so so that he could have Mama all to himself for one thing, and he thought Henry was going to marry a divorcee with two kids that he'd been seeing. And, man, that just would have crushed Augusta. It would have devastated. It would have been worse than the incident with the dog. And I also feel Henry was not okay with Eddie's weird relationship with Augusta. I think there's more to that story, but, man, we'll never really know. But as far as the two murders that he was convicted of, they were both absolutely premeditated and planned. It, I mean, it really it was a planned execution. It was a little kind of in, in the Neanderthal category, just shoot him and drag him out in both cases. But what makes them unique is that Eddie didn't try to cover up the crimes to any 
any degree with the exception of changing the tires on his car which we talked about in the uh, part one you know he left the, the receipts he left bullet casings uh, but he did get the bodies out quick and is that not to get caught or is that so he could get them home while they were still warm i don't know but there's definitely more to this than than what you know in in the 1950s they would have uh, painted a little bit more palatable picture than what was really happening and then on the other hand let's face it uh journalists and and the media has always been kind of sketchy whether you're telling the truth or not so i think uh but it's still to me the most one of the most fascinating crime series in american history but this legacy that eddie created will probably live on forever i I mean they did uh, the movie psycho which was a fantastic movie i have the book on the audible and i mean my wife have watched that movie a hundred times easy there's also the texas chainsaw massacre which the idea of somebody living out in a very rural area and taking advantage of lost people or just people wandering through and doing what they did um, I, I could see where he got bits of that from the story about Ed Gein. Of course, we have Silence of the Lambs, which everybody remembers. It puts the lotion on its skin. It puts the lotion on its skin. The dude was making skin suits out of women, and that's that comes directly from Eddie. I've heard others refer to Motel Hell as a kind of taken from Gein, but I see that more as taken from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre than Gein. But although, you know, Farmer Vincent Sausage, it, it was to me a, kind of a funny horror movie and uh there was a a movie or two about eddie himself so i would imagine in the future there's probably going to be a bigger production type movie about ed gein in the future that's at some point i I can't see how they won't do it so that's the story of eddie gein i hope you all found that as fascinating as i did so some of this stuff i read while i was working on this and i can't resist so if you're squeamish to jokes then turn it off i guess but there's some funny jokes in here and there's also some funny limericks and a poem too uh there once was a man named ed who wouldn't take a woman to bed when he wanted to diddle he cut out the middle and hung the rest in the shed what did investigators find in eddie gein's cookie jar lady fingers what did eddie gein say to the sheriff that arrested him have a heart why did they let eddie out early on new year's eve so he could dig up a date. What's Eddie Gein's favorite restaurant? Chick-fil-A. Okay, here's a kind of a, re- a reworking of uh, a visit from St. Nick. It was the night before Christmas and all through the shed. All the creatures were stern, even old Ed. The bodies were hung from the rafters above while Eddie was searching for another new love. He went to Watoma for a plain field deal, looking for love and also a meal. When what to his hungry eyes should appear? But old Mary Hogan in her new red brassiere, her cheeks were like roses when kissed by the sun, and she let out a scream at the sight of Ed's gun. Old Ed pulled the trigger and Mary fell dead. He took out his axe and he cut off her head. Then he took out his hacksaw and cut her in two, one half for hamburger, the other for stew. And laying a hand aside of her heel, up to the rafters won his next meal. He sprang to his truck, to the graveyard he flew. The hours were short and much work must he do. He looked for the grave where the fattest one laid and started digging with shovel and spade. He shoveled and shoveled and shoveled some more till finally he reached the old coffin door. When he took out a crowbar and pried open the box, he was not only clever but sly as a fox. As he picked up the body and cut off her head, he could tell by the smell that the old girl was dead. He filled in the grave by the moonlight above and once more Ed had found a new love. He let out a yell as he drove out of sight. If I don't get caught, I'll be back tomorrow night. There you go. A little Ed Gein humor for you after listen to two hours of me talk about a crazy life he had. I think next we're going to move on to some other unique characters from the USA. Until then, I hope you all take care and be safe. It's kind of funny that I'm finishing this all off on Mother's Day. (laughs) Anyway, happy Mother's Day, everybody. And you dads out there, hit pause on the game and read to your kids for 15 minutes. It'll mean the world to them. Talk to y'all soon.